So it lays out search flow, how those are broken down, and uh, I'll make sure that this is available for you so you can have this for your notes as well. Uh, it, uh, it can act as a guide so you know what the context is of what you're reading. Uh, so Revelation, of course, is the last book in the Bible. It was written um, somewhere around 90 to 95 AD. Uh, unless you're a preterist, remember, preterists believe that it was written um, about 68 AD, which would have been before the fall of the temple. Uh, they believe that it was written in 68 AD or somewhere around there because the book of Revelation does not talk about the temple as if it had fallen. It talks about the temple as being present. So since it doesn't mention the fall of the temple, then obviously for preachers that means it hadn't happened. Now, but there are other things to back up and more uh, strongly correlate the, the idea of about 90 to 95 AD. Um, it was written by uh, John, and it was written while he was on the island of Patmos, uh, where he was uh, in exile. Now, it's, uh, it is significant that Revelation is the last book in the Bible, um, and I would recommend that this is not one of those things where you skip to the end of the book to see what happened. Uh, because reading through the Bible from the beginning and through to the end uh, allows you to have a, a better understanding of what it is that you're reading in Revelation. Um, many have difficulty understanding the book uh, because you know, it, it just seems to use language that they, that they just can't put together as, as being something meaningful. Uh, Revelations has been uh, taken by uh, uh, atheists and secularists, I know I said Revelations, to be, because I'm talking about it in, in different terms, uh, it has been taken to be uh, a sign of UFOs and aliens. And it is a, a sign of uh, things that are actually outside of the Bible, uh, things that are uplifting of man itself as opposed to its focus. And this is another example of taking things instead of the whole, taking individual pieces and saying, well, this obviously means this, and not looking at the context, which we know better than to do because we've gone through and learned how to read the Bible for all it's worth. So. Let's go ahead and uh, get into it as the passages themselves give us some understanding in how it is that we can read through Revelation and understand it. So, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. Uh, he sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John, who faithfully reported everything that he saw, and this is the report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. God bless the one who reads these words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to the message and obey what it says, for the time is near. So we know that the reason that this is here is so that the church all can be blessed in hearing of it, in teaching of it, 
and um, making yourself uh, understand and be ready for the time is near. Uh, there is a, a need for us to be uh, obeying uh, what is laid out here. And you say, well, James, how can you obey some prophetic works? It gives us an idea through different symbolisms and through different analogies of how it is that we should be acting. And that's actually going to be more of our focus as soon as we're done with our overview here. Um, we, of course, are trying to convey some abstract thoughts, and often that ends up being in symbolic form. So I want you to think about explaining everyday occurrences to a child. Uh, yesterday, for example, we were setting up a computer for Jeremiah, and he asked me what default was. Now, we understand what default means, right? In, it means that that's just it's the go-to action, right? So in software terms, the default program, which is what we were setting up, the default program is the, the program that will run the type of file um, unless you specifically give it an alternative. So for example, uh, the Windows 10 computers come with Edge for browsing. And Edge, it, sole purpose in life is to download Google Chrome so that you can really browse the internet. It's, it's a joke. It's, it's actually a meme all over the place. You wouldn't believe it. So, <clears throat> uh, when you download Chrome, such as I did last night, it asks, it tells you, it walks you through the process to set that up as the default web browser, and that's where the question came from. But I found myself struggling to define default Again, because I wanted to use the word default, and you can't define a word by using the word in it. Um, so I, I searched and I came with uh, all sorts of, of different things instead of just getting down to the base of it. But uh, think about trying to, to just explain even base concepts to children who have no concept of what those things are. Um, defining not just words, but uh, things that they need to do. And you often have to go outside those, uh, you know, those standard go-to uh, phrases that you've used on a regular basis. You sometimes have to think outside the box as you try to explain it to them. And that is, uh, that is basically what's happening, happening here in the book of Revelation. So there are things that just did not exist in, in the time that Revelation was being written, uh, time that he was giving this, uh, this, uh, these visions. And, um, you know, it's hard to understand, you know, the whole world erupting in fire. Uh, until you come to this day and age where we have things like nuclear weapons. Uh, it's tough to understand communication with the whole world in an instant. It's tough to understand be, the whole world being able to see something at the same time. It's, it's something that at the time this was written, there was, there was no technology that took care of that. There was nothing that spoke to that. So uh, he was given a vision, and the revelation is what he's written down here using that type of language. It does say specifically here that the time is near. Uh, that indicates that the events of this book started unfolding immediately after John wrote them. So there is 
a definite start to when these visions, uh, to the time frame that these visions are talking about, and there is a definite end uh, for these things to, to come to be. And this is where we get into the different time frames that you look at. Now, as we continue down, we get to uh, chapter 4, uh, or verse 4, pardon me. This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. From the sevenfold spirit before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, he is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead, and the ruler of all the kings of the world. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He has made us a kingdom of priests for his God or his Father God. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. <coughs> Pardon me. So this book is primarily about the second coming of Christ. This is the culmination of God's plan that he put into action for the redemption of man. This is the basic introduction for us here. Now, it says to the seven churches. Were there more than seven churches at the time? Yes, there was. Um, there are more, more than seven churches, but you'll see that as we look at these, uh, in chapters 2 and 3, the churches basically are examples, not just of churches that we even see today, but of a, a, a type of um, a type of even person that uh, we would want to, to emulate or not, uh, a type of, of age where these different things happen. So the, the seven churches, basically, even if you took those and changed the names to modern churches that you know today, uh, their example would still hold true and you would be able to take a look at them and say, well, this, this is the type of church that I want to go to, or I see this happening in this church, uh, that type of thing. So let's uh, actually begin to take a, a look at a few of them here. There are seven churches that are listed, and they are given specific attributes. So starting in chapter 2, Verses 1 through 7 uh, talk to the church in Ephesus. Now, the church in Ephesus, um, Ephesus means desirable. It, they are spoken about having left their first love. So this is a church that is backsliding. So though they are... Uh, so though they are um, Christians, though they are um, followers of Christ, they are backsliding to the ways of their old lives, and they are warned against that. They are also given a blessing or a promise that they will uh, have access to the tree of life. Do you remember what the tree of life is? The tree of life was introduced all the way back in Genesis at the beginning of the world in creation. And the tree of life is what uh, Adam and Eve were cut off from when they were cut off from the Garden of Eden. It was specifically that tree, and that is what changed the number of man's days to 120. 
Okay. Uh, then in verses 8 through 11, we have uh, Smyrna, the church at Smyrna, uh, whose name means myrrh. Uh, the character of the church, this is a church that is being persecuted. There are many martyrs in this church. Uh, they are told not to fear. They are told not to fear because they will receive the crown of life. So though they are facing um, persecution, they need not fear that. Next in verses 12 through 17, you see the church at Pergamum. Now, Pergamum means marriage. Now, this is a, a church that is compromising. These, these people are not making themselves a new creation. They are holding on to teaching, teachings of uh, Balaam and Balak. Uh, they are holding on to teachings that are other than what Christ has taught. And they are um, taking hold of those things. They are becoming friendly uh, with the world. Then you have the, the church at uh, Theatira, verses 18 through 29 of chapter 2, which is uh, continual sacrifice. Now this is a church that is uh, lax. What did you say? Okay. This is a church that is uh, that is lax. That is not doing everything that they should be doing. Um, this is uh, they have followed the teachings of uh, Jezebel. They are supposed to hold fast to what they have, and they will receive uh, authority over nations and the, the morning star. They were tolerant of all things. Then we have the message to the church at Sardis. They had a reputation for being alive. Sartaris means remnant. But in reality, they were dead. I would liken this to uh, a church that, that is filled with members that look good, that talk the talk, but when it comes down to it on a daily basis, they don't walk the walk. Then you have the church at Philadelphia. Philadelphia, you're familiar with, what does it mean? Brotherly love, yes. And this was a favored church. Um, they are weak, but they are obedient. And they are told to, to hold fast to what they have, and they will be kept from the hour of temptation, and they will be a pillar of the temple. And then you have the church in Laodicea, which means people's right. And Laodicea is a lukewarm church. They are uncommitted. 
And they are told that uh, since they are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, they will be spit out. And they are told to buy from God. To buy their gold from God that has been purified by fire so that they will be truly rich. And then they will be granted to be able to sit on the throne. So through the example of these different churches, I can think of uh, several churches in this day and age that meet that type of example. Uh, I can also think uh, of these not just as, as churches that lead this type of example, but uh, of people. As you look at individuals that make up the church, uh, you have people that are, for example, lukewarm. They never want to commit to, to anything. They never speak out against anything, and they never speak out for anything. Um, I can think of uh, those that are, uh, that are weak. Though, they, um, though they're Christians, there's just no passion and there's no fervor for, for Christ. Uh, though they are obedient, they need to be strengthened. I can think of people that are like the, the dead church. Though they may look like they are alive, have a reputation for being alive, it's all a facade. And when you look deeper, it doesn't hold any water. It's completely dead. So there is an example of uh, each church, and there are examples of each attribute that those uh, churches have, and I think that those hold a big, uh, a big example for all of us in what we should strive to be. Um, we should strive, obviously, not to be lukewarm. We should uh, seek to be strong uh, and obedient. Uh, we should strike to be real and uh, not actually just look live, but actually be live. And you can go on and on with that. Then we move on to chapter 4. Now in chapter 4, a change takes place. Though previously John was talking about things of this earth, uh, now we are moved into the heavens. Uh, the kingdom is opened up to John, and he sees the throne and the one who sat upon it, and immediately he knows who it is. Uh, he doesn't need to be told. He knows immediately that it is the throne of God, and God was in control of all history. Uh, John saw a remarkable vision of powerlessness and weakness of man, but of the greatness of mighty God. And he saw a throne and a lamb standing in front of the throne. Now this lamb had its, coat, its throat cut. Uh, it had been slaughtered. And somehow, as John watches, the lamb turned into a lion. And John saw that the lion, who was the lamb that had been slaughtered, was also the king of all. Who do you think the lamb represents? Who does the lamb represent? Christ, there you go. Thank you. I kind of heard it softly whispered over here, but uh, it, is, uh, it is Jesus. So starting in uh, chapter 4, Then as I looked, the door, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice I had heard before spoke like a trumpet blast. And the voice said, 
Come up here and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the Spirit and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. And the one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian. And the glow of emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Twenty-four thrones surrounded him and twenty-four elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and gold, crowns on their head. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. And in the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes in front and the back. The first of these living beings was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third like a human, and the fourth like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over their eyes, inside and out. Day after day and night after night, they kept saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is to come. Then, in chapter 5, John sees the scroll, or the book, at the right hand of the one who is sitting on the throne. And inside of the scroll, um, there is writing. And on the outside of the scroll, there is writing as well. And it is sealed with seven seals. And he sees the strong angel who shouts out in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll and open it? But John can see no one in heaven or in earth that is worthy to break the seals. This is so traumatic to John that he begins to weep because he can find nobody in his sight that is able to open the seals. But then, one of the 24 elders says to him, Stop! Look! At the line of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, he has won the victory, for he is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw the lamb that looked like it had been slaughtered, but was now standing before the throne and the four living beings, and among the twenty-four elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out from every part of the earth. And he stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting, and then he took the scroll, the four living beings, and twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, singing, You are worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals and to open it. For you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for your God, and they will reign on the earth. So we see that the slaughtered lamb, which represents Christ, is the only one that is able to break the seals. There are seven seals, and each one of those is broken. There are a lot of... Oh, that's not changing. Oh, you Could you unfreeze it? Sorry. Well, you know, it looks a lot less blurry on my screen. So there are seven seals. The seven seals are listed across the top. 
Uh, starting in chapter 6, we see uh, each of the, the seals and what they represent. Uh, once they are uh, loosened, now, oh, I'm sorry, keep in mind that we've already seen seven churches. Now we're seeing seven seals, uh, each revealing a new power to work on earth, and they're followed by seven trumpets and then seven bulls or vials with the wrath of God. So there's, the number seven appears many, many times. We also dealt with the seven spirits and the seven horns and eyes. So white. The lamb broke the first of the seven seals, and then I heard one of the four living beings say like a voice of thunder, Come. I looked up and saw a white horse. Its rider carried a bow and a crown placed across its head, and he rode out to win many battles and gain the victory. So white is the color of the divine being, representing purity and holiness, and the bow speaks of conquering. So here we see the conquering of the gospel. As Jesus had predicted when he said in Matthew 24, Verse 14, and the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it, and then the end will come. And that is what the first seal represents. The second seal, then another horse appeared, a red one. Its rider was given a mighty sword and the authority to take peace from the earth, and there was war and slaughter everywhere. So the sword symbolizes a terrible power, war everywhere. Think of the, uh, we think of like things like the nuclear bomb. We think of um, just terrorism on a, on a huge scale, so that there was no peace to be found anywhere. Now you notice this is followed immediately by the third horse. So I looked up and I saw a black horse, and its rider was holding a pair of scales in its hands, and I heard a voice from among the four live, living beings say, a loaf of wheat bread or three loaves of barley will cost a day's pay, and don't waste the olive oil and the wine. Immediately after war, Famine. Famine, which is inevitable after a thing such as a worldwide war. Then the Lamb breaks the fourth seal and says, Come. And you see a horse whose color is pale green, and his rider is named Death. His companion was the grave, and these two were given authority over one fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and famine and disease and wild animals. So death is on a horse, followed by a hearse right behind. Now, John is seeing that these seals are forces at work in humanity that produce the events in history, 
in the last days. Uh, human power is what is elevated during this point in time. The human power uh, to rely on self and to take care of self. Uh, the, the outworking of those, of course, is death. The fifth seal, martyrs and, uh, pardon me, I saw the star under the altar of the souls who all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. And they shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge the blood for what they have done for us? Then a white robe was given to each of them and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, the fellow servants martyred in Jesus, uh, who were to be martyred, had joined them. This is followed by the sixth seal. And as he breaks the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake. The sun becomes dark as black cloth, and the moon becomes red as blood, and the stars of the sky fell like green figs falling from the tree shaken by a strong wind. Sounds similar to a little bit of what we read last week in all of the discourse. The sky was rolled up like a scroll, and all of the mountains and islands were moved from their places. So great trembling of the earth that is, uh, that is so prevalent that islands and continents are moved. And then the seventh seal. The seventh seal summarizes the events of the last half of the seven-year period, unfolding in chapters 10 and 11 where again you encounter earthquakes and the seventh trumpet sounds. Now as we move on, uh, chapters 12, 13, and 14 introduce us to the different people, the different actors that we see on the screen. First, you have the woman, the woman who is recognized as Israel, who bring forth, brings forth the man-child, who history has already informed us is the Son of God. And against him there are great conflicts. Uh, there are angels of the devil and the great dragon called Satan. And as John watches, the beast rises up out of the sea, and he is able to recognize the beast in the form of a human. And the government linked, presumably, to Rome, the fourth great uh, world kingdom spoken of by uh, Daniel. Now, if you think about this, you th you'd say to yourself, well, the Roman Empire is dead. But when you look at it, there is not a single nation in the Western Hemisphere that was not settled by a member of the Roman Empire. So for all intents and purposes, they, the Roman Empire was the, the forefather of the empires that you see today. So it never really died. The whole Western world is very Roman in its thought and its philosophies and its attitude. Now associated with this beast, out of the sea is another beast or religious leader which rises out of the earth and who many link to the Antichrist. Chapters 14, 15, and 16 contain the description of the vials of wrath of God. 
which are exactly the same as the terrible judgment that Jesus spoke about when the sun would be darkened, the moon turned to blood, and God's wrath would be poured out on the earth. You also find the mystery of Babylon the Great. Now, Babylon was the source of ancient idolatry and is the picture of what we might call religious godlessness, which looks godly, but in essence is godless, which outwardly commands power and attention of man, but inwardly devoted to trying to exercise political power by the use of religious authority. Now, I don't believe that the mystery of Babylon is any one particular system, denomination, or that it is necessarily the church itself. But I would like to keep in mind, you to keep in mind here that uh, now these figures are for 2015, but Christianity um, has approximately 2.3 billion people who claim to be Christians. The next one after that is Islam with 1.8 billion people they claim to be associated with Muslims, or Islam, Muslim. Uh, Muslim just means follower of, uh, of Allah. And then following that, 1.2 billion people that claim to have no religion, to be atheist or agnostic, not assigned to any particular belief system. Now, Islam in particular is interesting because their eschatology includes Christ. Islam takes Christ's return. Now, mind you, he did not get sacrificed for our sins. He did not come back from the dead. Uh, his blood wasn't spilled to redeem us, but he does return as a conquering hero to kill all the infidels that do not believe in Allah. It's interesting that for Islam, which is the second biggest religion in, in, uh, by way of uh, numbers there, still holds true to, uh, to the person of Christ as, um, as, a, a, as at least a prophet, a man of great power. Uh, but they would lead you astray to believe that he is nothing more than a conquering hero for the one who actually intercedes for them is Muhammad. Christ is nothing more than a conquering hero who returns to fight and kill all the infidels. Sounds like a great deception. Now we'll continue on into chapter 19. We have here in chapter 19 the harvest that is predicted in chapter 14. Jesus returning to earth. Let's look at 19 verses 11 through 15. Then I saw the heaven opened and a white horse was standing there and his rider was named Faithful and True for he judges fairly. 
and wages of righteous... Wait, did I skip something? For he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flame of fire, and his head, on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understands except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on a white horse. And from his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a winepress. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. So all the nations of the earth are gathered together in the battlefield in Armageddon, the land of Israel. And it is there that the Son of God appears with the army of heaven. Now at last you have the supernatural forces which men have denied even existing uh, coming to bear revealing themselves to human eyes in a way as to eliminate any opposition, uh, to root out any entrenched evil. Then we move on to chapter 20. Now you'll remember I introduced at the beginning of the month words such as premillennialism, <laughs> millennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. Chapter 20 is one of the most dividing chapters in the Bible. As people seek to understand the end times, people have taken this chapter and it has caused differences and divisions. So much conflict, in fact, that many have forsaken Christian fellowship with those who hold any type of different opinion from them. I have sought uh, all month to let you make your own conclusions in regards to uh, what is right. And my recommendation, of course, is that you read Revelation yourself and uh, seek to understand what it has to tell you. There is nothing in the Constitution of Aletheo Bible Fellowship that says that we are premillennialist, amillennialist, or postmillennialist. And we would not seek to uh, sever our uh, association with you if you were to believe something different than us. So the book closes basically as God sets up his kingdom on earth as he's promised and after the judgment of the dead comes a new heaven and a new earth. The city of God coming down out of heaven. It can only be described in negative terms. By negative terms, I mean there is no temple, for it doesn't need one. It, it did not need a moon or a sun to shine upon it. The light from within was the presence of God. And its gates shall never be shut by day or night. The whole universe is at last cleansed of the rebellion of man, and there is nothing to be feared. All the beautiful dream of the prophets is to be fulfilled. Their men shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and never make war anymore. So there will finally be everlasting peace as we see the culmination of God's plan, as we see Jesus returning victorious. And then finally, 
We are told to wait for the coming, to work for it, to be diligent, to be faithful, to be obedient until the Son of the Man comes. It is a book not of death and despair, though it may describe those things. It is a book of optimism. It's a positive outlook with something to look forward to, knowing that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So although it paints a dark, dark picture, it looks beyond that to the final victory of God and into the sun. So that is a brief overview of Revelation, a few with, uh, along with a few guides to it. I, I do recommend reading through this yourself and working through, and we, any of the elders would be more than happy to discuss with you as well. And I hope that as we go into cell groups that we have great discussion now, I would like uh, you to just think about a couple of questions. As we talked about eschatology over this past month, um, what, if anything, did you learn that was new to you? So was there anything new that you learned over this past month? Is that a better way to phrase it? How's that? I would also like you to um, discuss if there was anything that you found surprising. And I would like you to think about um, how revelation affects you in this day and age. So go ahead and take opportunity to discuss, and then we'll come back and, and close our time this morning.